At Easter, the Son of God took on the world's sin and defeated the devil, death, and the grave itself. How is it then that history's most glorious moment is surrounded by fearful fishermen, despised tax collectors, marginalized women, feeble politicians, and traitorous friends? Well, today on The Land and the Book, you're going to meet the characters of Easter. But before that, we'll help you understand what's going on in the Middle East in recent headlines. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, who has wrapped up two back-to-back Israel trips. And I'm John Geiger. You ever wonder what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And why is it important? What does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, this Palm Sunday weekend finds you in London, Charlie, with your daughter and son-in-law after two back-to-back Israel trips. And before we focus on current events, I have to ask, what are your final reflections on your time in Israel? Uh, well, you know, we, we experienced uh, some of the minor disruptions that went on, uh, but nothing too dramatic. You know, this, this past Monday, we were scheduled to visit the Israel Museum in the afternoon, but that's when they scheduled a massive rally at the Knesset right across the street. Uh, We tried to arrive early, but still got caught in the massive traffic jam. Uh, We switched our program around and headed to the Ela Valley where David fought Goliath. Uh, So we managed to uh, still get in most of the sites, and the problem was manageable. Now, those scheduled on flights that were canceled that day had greater problems, but thankfully, the airport strike really didn't impact us. Now, beyond that, though, my first thoughts uh, on the trip are, uh, after almost three years of disruption, tourism is finally back and running on all cylinders. The hotels and the different sites were back to where they were in 2019, the year before COVID hit, and Jerusalem actually seemed more crowded. I did sense some of the tension and concern between the different demographic groups in Israel. The ultra-Orthodox do seem to be more aggressive in pushing their agenda, Hmm. and secular Israelis are nervous and pushing back. There's also tension between Israelis and Palestinians, though we weren't directly impacted as tourists. The groups I'm most concerned about in Israel right now are the Jewish and Arab believers. Uh, The Jewish believers tend to be conservative politically, but they're concerned about the ultra-Orthodox. Their freedom to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord is under attack. In a bizarre twist, they feel more protected by the extreme left rather than those with whom they share similar beliefs when it comes to conservative values. So they need our prayers. And the same thing is true of the Arab believers, especially those in areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. There's a growing trend toward Islamic fundamentalism, which is not tolerant of Muslims who come to faith in Jesus. Now, switching topics briefly, I was happy to see the Sea of Galilee just four feet shy of being completely full. Hmm. Uh, That will make, I think, future tours to Israel more exciting, especially now that they're bringing water in from the Mediterranean. Uh, Hopefully the Sea of Galilee is going to stay full from now on. Uh, We did get a little wet, John, but we just kept reminding ourselves that rain is a blessing on that first tour. All right. I like that report. Well, much of the news media have focused for the past two months on the earthquake 
that devastated south-central Turkey and the impact it has had on the rest of the country. But what about the impact the earthquake has had on Syria and its government? We seem to hear less about the impact on them. What are your observations? Well, we do know less about uh, the impact on Syria because of their pro-Iranian government and because of their continuing conflict with Israel. Our news media spends less time there, so we hear less. But having said that, we know Syria was already struggling financially before the quake. Part of the reason was the 12-year civil war within the country that devastated their economy. Turkey carved off a section of northwest Syria where they now have forces. Uh, U.S. forces are in eastern Syria where we've helped support the Kurds who carved out their own autonomous area. And of course, that area has made the news recently with some attacks by Iranian-backed groups. But all that left Syrian President Bashar Assad controlling a much smaller segment of his country. In the past, Syria was an oil exporting country, but most of their oil now is in the area controlled by the Kurds. As a result, Assad has to import oil from Iran to survive. And recently, Iran cut back on the amount of oil they were sending. Today, there's not enough gas for many Syrian workers to even drive to work. Uh, The average Syrian can't afford to buy gas anyway. Five gallons of gas now costs the equivalent of nearly a full month's wages for the average civil servant. Hmm. As a result, the streets in Damascus are are virtually empty of cars. Uh, At the beginning of this year, Syria's economy hit its lowest point since the start of the 12-year civil war. Uh, Their currency plunged and inflation is spiraling upward. Many people are living on funds sent to them from relatives abroad. And all this economic chaos was happening before the earthquake hit. Uh, Aleppo was once Syria's largest and most cosmopolitan city. It was devastated by the civil war with many buildings, little more than empty shells. And then the earthquake caused dozens more to collapse. The city that was Syria's economic powerhouse is just a hollow shell of its former self. Syria needs outside help to recover, but with their main allies being Russia and Iran, it's doubtful they'll receive anywhere near the level of economic help now being sent to Turkey. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. He joins us today in London. Story number three, Jordan, a country with a rich biblical history, but not many physical resources. Apparently, they're now hoping for a potential tourism bonanza by expanding Jesus' baptism site. So can they strike gold there along the eastern shore of the Jordan River? That's the question. Well, maybe, John, but I'm not too hopeful. Uh, We do know John the Baptist baptized Jesus at a site known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Uh, That is a site called Bethany that was on the east side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. Most tourists to Israel go to the baptismal site called Yardanit, just south of the Sea of Galilee, or to another site called Qasr al-Yahud, Castle of the Jews, on the west side of the Jordan near Jericho. Uh, The Jordanian site, which is more authentic, has been declared a World Heritage Site. And now the Jordanian government is trying to raise $300 million for a six-year project to build what they're calling a tourist city at the site. They're hoping to bring in five times more tourists than the current 200,000 that visit there each year. They want to build souvenir shops, walking trails, boutique hotels, and botanical gardens at the site, all while still preserving the rustic nature of the area, they say. Now, can this succeed? I personally have my doubts, certainly in terms of attracting more evangelical tourists. One problem is the baptismal experience. Most evangelicals go to Yardinit to be baptized by immersion, and up north the Jordan River's clean, but by the time the water flows down to near Jericho, it's more polluted. A second problem involves the logistics of getting to the site. Most trips to Israel are already quite full, and to carve out another day or more to cross over into Jordan just to visit the site 
That will create time pressures and add to the cost of the trip. And that, John, leads to my final concern, the climate. Anyone who's visited Jericho knows what it's like for much of the year. The sun is intense. The temperatures can be oppressive. Now, I'm not sure how many tourists would be interested in going on nature hikes in that area. Now, I really do hope Jordan is able to make this a reality, but I also hope they don't go overboard. I've been to the site. I like it, but it's just one more stop among several on a busy day, and I can't imagine people staying there for an extended visit. Archaeologists are always looking for new approaches to their craft, and uh, now this might include examining ancient fingerprints. What can we learn from a recent study of 1,600-year-old fingerprints, Charlie? Actually, more than you might think. Archaeologists uncovered a pottery factory at the Tel Moza excavations between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, right near the main highway. Uh, fragments of oil lamps were found, and more than a third were covered in fingerprints. Uh, the pottery fragments themselves were from the 5th or 6th centuries A.D., which is the Byzantine period. Uh, the archaeologist in charge contacted a police fingerprint examiner to help them study these fingerprints. Uh, they first sifted through all the fragments to determine which ones were useful, meaning ones that were complete or, or partial ones that could be pieced together. And using the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or APHIS, the examiner uploaded the images, created a mini database to compare the ancient fingerprints with each other. Uh, the ancient potters used fine quality clay, which helped preserve the prints. And those doing this study discovered the prints were predominantly of the left and right thumbs, indicating both thumbs were used to press the clay into the mold. The same thumbprints also appeared on the top and bottom sections of each lamp, suggesting the same potter was producing both sections of the lamp and they discovered that one individual must have been the primary potter. Most of the lamps had his or her fingerprints. The remainder were then produced by one or two other individuals. Uh, the police officers assisting in this project were doing it on their own time, which means that it took a little bit more time and, and even more analysis is left to be done. They'd like to see if they can determine age and gender from the prints, but that's uh, gonna take some time. One concept they did test was to see if it's true that each person's fingerprints are unique. So they ran the fingerprints through Aphis's database of over a million Israelis, and they didn't find a corresponding match. But then, as the one police officer said, if there had been a match, I'd have to look for another job. So analyzing 1,600-year-old fingerprints, just another tool in the modern-day archaeologist's arsenal to help study ancient civilizations. Hey, Charlie, we have been loving the photos and videos you've been posting at the Facebook page. Still time, of course, for folks to get in on these recent shots from the Holy Land, right? Oh, that's absolutely right. They'll be up there for a while, so go to our Facebook page and take a look at them. All right, coming up on The Land and the Book, we're going to meet the characters of Easter, a fascinating conversation next, right here. At Easter, the Son of God took on the world's sin and defeated the devil, death, and the grave itself. How is it then that history's most glorious moment is surrounded by fearful fishermen, despised tax collectors, marginalized women, feeble politicians, and traitorous friends? Well, you're about to meet the characters of Easter. Welcome to our second segment here at The Land of the Book. If we haven't met, I'm John Geiger, and before we dig into our conversation about the characters of Easter, what about the characters in your life who come from a Jewish background and, and need Jesus? How do we connect better with them? Here's a thought. Helping you help your Jewish friend find Yeshua in the Old Testament. That's our challenge as we sit down with Michael Rydelnik, general editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Where would you take us? I would say, you know, so often people say Jesus was some sort of victim 
No, this was a choice that the Hebrew prophets said he would make to suffer for us. It says in Isaiah 50, when it talks about the suffering servant, it's a first-person kind of statement, a poem written in the first person. He says, I gave my back to those who beat me mm-hmm. and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6, what he is saying is, I willingly suffered. I did not go to the cross as a victim. It was my choice. That's what the Lord Jesus taught. No man takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. He gave himself for us because it was his choice. He was not a victim of oppression. He was one who chose. He could have called those angels to deliver him, but he chose to die for us. Our thanks to Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies here at the Moody Bible Institute, joining us on The Land and the Book. It's easy to let the Easter season go by without really pondering the characters that took part in that astounding drama. Helping us see them up close is Daniel Darling, an author, pastor, and leader. Dan was recently appointed as the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a best-selling author of several books, including The Original Jesus, The Dignity Revolution, The Characters of Christmas, and now The Characters of Easter. And if that wasn't enough, Dan is also a columnist for World Magazine and a regular contributor to USA Today. Dan's work is often featured in Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition, and his op-eds have appeared in the Washington Post, CNN, Washington Times, Time, Huffington Post, National Review, and other leading outlets. Hey, we're honored to have you with us again here at the Land of the Book, Dan. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be on with you. Hey, who do you think, let me just start right in here, is the most complex personality in the story of Easter? I cast my vote for Pontius Pilate. What do you think? Well, that'd be a great vote. I mean, I think there's a number of characters that are complicated. I mean, you think of Pilate, you think of uh, Judas, but let's talk about Pilate for a minute. You know, here's a here's a man who, you know, has an assignment to be the governor of Judea. It's not a coveted assignment in the Roman Empire. It's considered sort of a backwater province. He struggled, if you, if you read history, to sort of keep that area in line. You know, there's been a few uprisings that he crushed violently, and he's kind of on thin ice with Rome. And so all that leads up to the confrontation with Jesus, and um, he knows that Jesus is not guilty. And what's interesting about Pilate is, at first glance, it looks like Jesus is on trial before Pilate, but when you really look, it's actually Pilate on trial before Jesus. Um, You know, he pulls Jesus back into his chambers and says, hey, you know, hey, can you work with me here? I have the power over your life. And Jesus returns and says, you know, Pilate, I have the authority, and you're only an authority because of the power that I have. And it's interesting that even in this moment, as Jesus is on trial and he, he's going to the cross, he was a foreordained, he's still going after Pilate's soul and heart and trying to win Pilate over to himself. And I just think it's a very fascinating story. You know, in my sanctified imagination, I like to think that Pilate, after the crucifixion and resurrection, became a believer and, you know, uh, we'll mm. see him in heaven, but who knows? Yeah. The Characters of Easter is from Moody Publishers, written by Dan Darling, our guest today on The Land and the Book. And through the pages of this book, you, you uh, help us to better understand Peter and John and Judas, Barabbas, Thomas, the women at the tomb, the Pharisees, and more. I want to ask you, who was the most difficult character to research? Well, you know, I think the one that really still puzzles people 2,000 years later is Judas. Um, how could mm. someone who 
you know, left everything to follow Jesus for three years. And let's not forget the sacrifice that all these disciples made. They left their livelihoods. They left, uh, in many ways, their reputations because they're following this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, and they're putting themselves at great risk. You know, it's likely that Judas, we know that Judas was sent out as when Jesus sent disciples out two by two to preach the gospel and heal. There's probably people, undoubtedly there's people that heard the gospel from Judas and followed Jesus, and yet Judas betrays Jesus at the end. And I think what we see with him is, you know, Jesus became inconvenient for him, that Judas, I think, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah that he wanted. He wanted someone who would take over and commit political revolution. And Jesus started doing all the wrong things, hmm. right? He he told the people of Israel, don't make me a king. He resisted that. He he allowed Mary to pour that expensive ointment over him, what Judas considered wasting money on worship. He was moving toward the cross. <laughs> he was predicting his death at the hands of the Romans. And so I think Judas cashed out. And, and a lot of times people look to Jesus to be sort of a mascot for their ambitions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of following the real Jesus. But it's a tragic story because Judas, in the end, even though he betrayed Jesus, he could have turned to Jesus on the cross and found forgiveness. Yes. You know, his death would cover that sin as well. And uh, I think the message is, even if you've betrayed Jesus, and all of us have in some ways, God's grace is enough to forgive us through the cross and resurrection. Dan Darling is a columnist for World Magazine, a regular contributor to USA Today. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book as we discuss his Moody Publishers book, The Characters of Easter. You've devoted an entire chapter to the witnesses, women at the tomb. Speak to the importance of women and their eyewitness accounts of the Easter events. I just think it's remarkable that the first gospel preachers, the first evangelists, were these women. They were the first ones to see the empty tomb. They are the first ones to tell the disciples that Christ is risen. And as you know, the resurrection is everything. As Paul said, without it, we're of all men most miserable. There's some remarkable things about these women. Um, some of them were poor peasants. You know, you think of, of Mary and Joseph probably didn't have much resources. Some were like Mary Magdalene with a checkered past. You have Salome, the mother of James and John. What's interesting is everyone else fled in fear, but it was the women who were at the foot of the cross, the women who went to the tomb ostensibly to take care of the body, but who saw the risen Lord. And so they were faithful. They were there. I think it says something about Christianity, Mm -hmm. that Christianity elevates the status of women. You know, in the first century, to have female witnesses would mean that their their testimony wouldn't be admissible in court. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that's one of the things we believe validates the story of the resurrection, that why would you put forward women as witnesses unless you really believed it was true? Yeah. I also think it says something about the way Christianity elevates women, that it, it everywhere it has gone, Christianity has elevated women, that men and women both are created in the image of God, complementary in design, of course, but walking side by side together. The fact that Jesus had women as followers would be a bit scandalous, even that first century. Mm. So I think it tells us a lot about Christianity. Let's swing our focus to Barabbas, the guy who was let go. If you had to guess... Do you think the events of Easter impacted him spiritually at all? And if so, how? And I realize this is pure conjecture, but I'm just wondering. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I love the story of Barabbas because, you know, you imagine him. He was on death row for a crime he he knew he committed. He was an insurrectionist. He was a, a mercenary, murder for hire. Imagine him in that cell, and he's putting his affairs in order, maybe writing letters to his parents, and you know, before he knows he's going to die. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and a Roman guard says, you're not going to believe this, but you've been set free. Hmm. And there's this man named Jesus who's going to die in your place. And 
What's interesting about the story of Barabbas is that, in a sense, all of us are Barabbas. All of us deserved to pay the penalty for our sins, but Jesus paid that penalty for us. He died in our place. And um, Barabbas is all of us. And I want to think that he so pondered that throughout his life that I wonder if he ever came to the realization that not only did Jesus physically die in his place, but he also spiritually died in his place. I like to think we will see Barabbas in heaven telling that story uh, to us. Our guest on The Land and the Book is Dan Darling, who has written the Moody Publishers title, The Characters of Easter. Dan is an author, pastor, leader, serves as the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I uh, really am intrigued with uh, the way you name Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciples. Uh, some insights here from your research. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about them is, I think at first glance, we look at them and say, man, what cowards, they should have been more outspoken about their faith. But when you actually look at their lives, they were quite courageous. Here's Nicodemus, who was probably the most learned um, Jewish teacher in all of Israel. Uh, Jesus said that about him. And yet he had the courage where other Pharisees, you know, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were people who really believed in the authority of Scripture. Uh, They were the conservatives. They would most likely be like us. And yet, most of them couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see the scriptures were pointing to Jesus. Nicodemus saw something in Jesus, and he, and he was intrigued. He met with him at night to hear him out. And then Joseph of Arimathea. Both of them were members of the Sanhedrin. They were Pharisees, even though most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, so they were in the minority there. But they saw something in Jesus. Later, Nicodemus would defend Jesus against the accusations. And then they did this courageous act. They took this body of Jesus and uh, asked for the body of Jesus. And they took care of the body, and Joseph offered his tomb. And let's think about this for a moment. This was a courageous act. This was that after years or months of being a silent Christian, coming out and saying, we are with Jesus. And I don't think we should judge harshly because, you know, there are people in many places around the world who have to practice their faith with discretion because to be open about it is great risk. And it's easy for us to say, well, they should just speak up or they should just do this. But you have to be wise about the timing Mm -hmm. and all those things. And I think with Nicodemus and Joseph, they did it at the right time. And we would not know of the resurrection without the gift of the tomb that Joseph gave. That, you know, Jesus would likely have been buried just in an unmarked grave, like a common criminal. But Joseph, in stepping up and saying he can use my tomb, demonstrates faith that Jesus won't need that tomb very long but also fulfill prophecy that he'd he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And so I think there are examples of courage in difficult situations. There's people who work in different positions who can't be as outspoken as others because of the nature of their work, because of the nature of their calling. And I think we should have grace toward them. And um, really, to me, Nicodemus and Joseph are our heroes in the Easter story. So much is made of Peter and his denial, particularly in light of his earlier bold claims But I secretly wonder if the real reason for so much ink being spilled on his account is because all of us are, to a lesser or greater degree, just like him. We all deny Jesus at points in our lives, big ways and small ways. What do you think? Man, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Peter. It was my favorite chapter to work on, probably the longest chapter in the book. And I just love Peter's story. You know, from the very beginning of the calling, Jesus calling him all the way through his life. And, you know, what's interesting about Peter is that if you look at all the gospel accounts, Jesus, there wasn't one call to follow Jesus. There was multiple calls. There was um, his brother Andrew coming back and saying, we found the Messiah. I can imagine him grabbing him by the lapels and saying, we found him. You're not going to believe this. Hmm. And um, Jesus appearing to them on the beach and 
and telling him to cast the nets on the other side, and Peter reluctantly obeying, and then seeing the, the net filled with fish, and then him falling down in worship, saying, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus appearing again and saying, hey, drop everything you're doing and follow me, which would be a great honor to follow a rabbi. And of course, they, they followed him. Peter was the one who made bold declarations that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's the one who, when everyone else left, and Jesus turned and said, are you, are you also going to leave? He said, where, where else are we going to go? And I think that exemplifies all of us, where Peter is saying, we don't understand everything you're doing and saying. We may not even like everything, but where else are we going to go for the words of eternal life? And then, of course, he denies Jesus. And um, one of the things I think we should think about the denial is a lot of everyone else had fled, and Peter was sticking with Jesus, trying to stick with him to the end. Mm. Peter's issue was that he had too much confidence in his own strength. Mm. I'll defend you. I'll be the one to take out my sword. I'm tough. You know, I can do this. And what he didn't realize is that he really wasn't. But Jesus saw through that and knew that he would one day be a pillar of the church. What's interesting about Peter is later in Peter's life, he's he's a leader of the church. Peter's willing to go to jail for preaching the gospel. Peter preached to 5,000 people or, or more at Pentecost. Peter, as tradition says, was martyred for his faith. By that point, Peter understood that genuine spiritual courage means being empowered by the Spirit of God, that it's not in your own strength, that we don't live for Christ, and we don't do great things for God in our own strength, but we're powered by the Spirit of God. And it's an amazing story of how God took someone like Peter with all of his flaws and all of his issues and raised him up to be a bold preacher of the gospel. And I think it's a story that God wants to do things like that in all of us. This is a fascinating conversation. I wish we had more uh, time to expand. We don't, but we'll sure have you back again. Daniel Darling has written The Characters of Easter from Moody Publishers. Thanks for your visit today. Thank you for having me. Grateful for the ministry of Moody Radio. Well, if you're grateful for this ministry, you'll want to stick around as Charlie Dyer returns to entertain a brand new set of Bible questions next on The Land and the Book. Hope you're enjoying The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Makes you feel like you're there. Even in the questions that come into us, Charlie, I'm amazed how they often take us to Israel itself uh, via the scriptures. You know, they do. It's uh, it's amazing. When you get to the Bible, you're, you're in Israel. And so <laughs> they ask the Bible questions, and we're there at some place. Well, speaking of questions, folks wonder, what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and, and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life in Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. It's called Charlie What? The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort. And it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Now, receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's get to today's questions. And by the way, yours is welcome anytime with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Dave says, many of us evangelical Christians believe that a temple in Jerusalem will exist in the tribulation. The Antichrist will even set himself up as God in it. Now, must a temple first be built or even be in the process of being built before sacrifices could be offered? We read in Ezra 3, verse 3, that when the people had only built the altar, they offered sacrifices. So 
Why don't Jews even now offer up sacrifices near the Temple Mount, but far enough away from the Dome of the Rock to prevent an outrage? Well, I, I got to start by saying I agree with everything you've suggested. You're right in noting that following the Babylonian captivity, the people were able to build the altar and offer sacrifices before the temple was built. However, the key difference between then and now is that they built the altar on the very same spot where the altar had existed before the time of captivity. Hmm. Uh, they did this in light of God's command in Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, in verses 5 and 6. God said, you're to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes and put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Uh, once God chose that spot in Jerusalem, that's the only place where sacrifices were to be offered. And today, that spot is on the Temple Mount, next to the Dome of the Rock. Uh, the Orthodox Jews see that as the only place where they're allowed to build the altar and offer sacrifices, and that's what makes it so sticky. Uh, Richard says, I have a Jewish friend who says that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because he didn't enter Jerusalem by the East Gate. How would you answer his objection? You know, I'd actually answer that two ways. First, Mark chapter 11, and the first 11 verses there, it presents Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He started in Bethany, that's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. He then rode down the Mount of Olives on a colt in fulfillment of Zechariah 9's prophecy regarding the arrival of Israel's king. And the people quoted Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Mark 11, 11 then literally says, Jesus entered Jerusalem into the temple. Our English translations sometimes add some other words, but literally it's, he entered Jerusalem into the temple. Well, the gate into the temple from the Mount of Olives was the Eastern Gate. So the day he was presented as Israel's king, he did enter the Eastern Gate. But second, the passage I think your friend is referring to is probably Ezekiel 43. However, the temple described in that portion of scripture is not the temple that was in existence in the first century. It's a still future temple presented there, and the dimensions are unlike anything that's ever existed before. This temple will be built in the kingdom era still to come. Uh, and in 43 verses 1 to 5, the glory of the Lord enters this new temple by the eastern gate, which is then closed off. Uh, Jesus will fulfill that prophecy at the time of his second coming. Uh, you might use this as an opportunity to explain to your friend that the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, presents two comings of the Messiah. At his first coming, he came as the sin bearer in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And at his second coming, he'll come to fulfill the remaining prophecies as he becomes king of kings and lord of lords of not just Israel, but all the earth. This is The Land in the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, answering questions that have come to us via email. Get yours to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Daniel says, I've got a question about Acts 6. I always thought the same Jewish leaders who killed Jesus also murdered Stephen. But in Acts 6, sounds like a totally different group of people. Who was it? Who were the freedmen? And where were they from exactly? And, and why were they in Jerusalem? How could they even get away with killing Stephen when the Jewish leaders couldn't kill Jesus without Roman approval? Could it be because they were not from or residents of Jerusalem? Well, uh, the answer is going to be just a bit complex, but I think it's also fascinating. First, uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, the Greek word there is actually libertinos, uh, refers to Jewish individuals who had once been slaves, perhaps by uh, Romans or by others, uh, but who had been liberated or set free. A plaque was actually found in Jerusalem mentioning a synagogue built by an individual who was the son of a former slave. Uh, very possibly, uh, that was describing the very synagogue of the freedmen. 
Uh, those at this synagogue included individuals that says they're from Cyrene, which is Libya, and Alexandria, which is Egypt. So it included uh, freedmen from North Africa, but it also mentions individuals from Cilicia, well, that's southeastern Turkey, and Asia, which is western Turkey. So it's likely these, these individuals, these Jews, were Hellenistic Jews since they were from these Hellenistic areas. Remember as well, Philip was also likely a Hellenistic Jew. You know, in Acts chapter 6, he's one of those chosen uh, when a dispute arose among the Hellenistic Jews and the, the uh, normal Jews from the area, and he was one of the ones picked to help out with the distribution. So uh, that's how he came in contact, likely, with this group. They were fellow Hellenistic Jews that he was ministering to or, or sharing the gospel with. Now, to the main part of the question, though, the group responsible for the murder of Stephen is the same group as those responsible for the death of Jesus. And I say that because in verse 12, these Hellenistic Jews, it says, stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Well, the council is the Sanhedrin, and that's the group that tried Jesus in Matthew 26, 59. So Stephen did end up in front of the same group as Jesus. Now, technically, this group wasn't allowed to put someone to death without Rome's approval. Uh, what I believe happened is Stephen's defense so enraged them that literally they took the law into their own hands and murdered him illegally. Mm-hmm. You know, Acts 7 says they gnashed their teeth at him. They cried out. They covered their ears to show their refusal to listen. They rushed at him. They grabbed him. They took him outside and stoned him to death. Uh, they became a mob bent on revenge. Technically, they could have been arrested and tried for murder, but apparently the Roman authorities simply decided to overlook this act of lawlessness. And what I also find interesting is in Acts 21, the same thing almost happened to Paul when they grabbed him in the temple. They were dragging him across the court of the Gentiles to take him out and stone him the same way they did Stephen when the Romans spotted him and the garrison came down and rescued Paul. So uh, yes, that's not supposed to happen, but it did happen on occasion. Chris says, a Christian program I heard claims that yoga has its roots in Eastern religions, and thus Christians should have second thoughts prior to participating. And that got me thinking about other popular practices that may have Eastern or Far Eastern roots. To your knowledge, do martial arts like karate, kung fu, taekwondo, and tai chi have religious or philosophical roots contrary to Christian values? And what about things like acupuncture and its origins? Lastly, what are your thoughts on listening to New Age music, not as a form of meditation, but just for enjoyment? Yeah, and this is one of those where I have to start by saying, I don't have a great answer for you because these are areas that I've never explored personally. Uh, But I do have two suggestions. First, I would encourage you to search online and see if there are connections between martial arts and Eastern religions. And also check to see if the connection, if one exists, is just historical or if Eastern religions are still very much a part of those martial arts as they're practiced and taught today. Uh, And second, I'd encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians 8 to 11. You know, in those chapters, Paul discusses the issue of people in Corinth eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul's addressing the question of whether such associations would taint the meat in such a way that the believers ought to avoid it. Yeah, Paul begins by reminding his readers that There's only one true God, and that the association to idols or other gods, as he says it, isn't significant since those other gods don't really exist. But then Paul points out two other problems. Uh, There are weaker believers who could be offended or harmed, and there are those who do believe in these other gods who might misunderstand should someone appear to participate in idolatry by eating the meat. Now, I think the point of comparison might be this. If martial arts had its origin in Eastern religions, but the connection is no longer there, 
then it's likely okay to participate. But if pagan practices are still an integral part of the discipline, it could raise questions you need to answer based on Paul's principles there in 1 Corinthians 8 to 11. Uh, the same thing's true of music. If there's something in the music that promotes Eastern religions or that opens your heart and mind to such mystical influences, well, then it could definitely be a problem. Ask yourself how you feel when listening to the music. Does it help draw you closer to God or does it open you up to spiritual forces that don't align with God? And that's a look at questions that have come into our email inbox. If we didn't get to yours, maybe it's next week or maybe, much worse, you didn't send it in. Why not care for that now? Email your Bible question. Maybe it's a prophecy question, a question about Israel itself. Email it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Boy, I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's coming up next here on The Land and the Book. I don't know how it is in your church, but in ours, we very often wave palm branches on Palm Sunday. And often it's the kids coming down the aisle and a really nice time of celebration. And yet, it's a whole lot more deep than just that. Jesus was actually fulfilling something on Palm Sunday. What was that something? We'll talk about it in Charlie Dyer's devotional right after this thought from a traveler to Israel who wants to share this with you. Hi, my name is Rob, and uh, I'm so thankful for this Holy Land experience. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time looking at uh, maps and topography and uh, thought I kind of knew things a little bit. And I can remember going up to Mount Arabel, which is high above the Sea of Galilee, and just looking across and seeing, not just on a map, but seeing all the cities, Capernaum, and just seeing the King's Highway and the valleys and, and uh, just gaining a new appreciation for where things are. And uh, I'm actually looking forward to reading the Bible again so I can actually look up all those places and remember them, seeing them live. My name is Katie from Michigan. And I, I think it's so easy to, when you read the Bible and you've been a Christian a long time, it, it, you'd lose some of the significance and the impact of it. So it was neat to hear Charlie explain it in the context of where it happened and it makes it come alive and it just makes it more meaningful and makes it exciting again. And of course, the baptismal service was awesome. Thanks. All right, thank you for those great insights. Charlie, I'm intrigued. You uh, have entitled today's devotional, Choosing the Lamb. Yeah, John. And uh, if everybody's ready, you need to lace up your running shoes because our destination today takes us down the Mount of Olives, up into the temple courts, and then back up the Mount of Olives. It's a long hike. Now, this weekend is Palm Sunday, and we're following Jesus as he rides down the Mount of Olives and walks into the temple. Today, we'll see how his name, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, meshes in perfect harmony with the events of that weekend. Uh, let's first look at the name Yeshua, Jesus. It's actually the name we know as Joshua in the Old Testament. The name means Yahweh is salvation. Gabriel told Mary that this was the name she was to give her son. And the angel who later appeared to Joseph explained why. You're to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. In just a few days, Jesus will become the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who will die to take away the sins of the world. But in Exodus 12, God provided very clear instructions regarding the Passover lamb, while it will eventually be slaughtered on the 14th day of the month Nisan, 
Five days earlier, on the tenth day of the month, the animal is to be chosen. It must be without defect and set apart until the time of its slaughter. Palm Sunday focuses on the events that happened 2,000 years ago on the tenth day of Nisan. The lamb is being set aside and examined to be sure he is without spot or blemish. As we follow Jesus into the temple, we see him look around at everything. But since it's already late in the day, Jesus leaves and returns to Bethany for the evening. Following behind, I'm sure you're happy you're wearing those comfortable shoes. The lamb has now been set aside, but he must still be examined for any defect. The religious leaders take great pains over the next few days to do just that. They challenge Jesus' authority and try to trip him up with their questions. But they're unable to find any fault or blemish. Finally, Matthew adds, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The ultimate Passover lamb was presented on the proper day and then examined for defects or blemishes, but none were found. He's ready to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, has fulfilled the requirements of Exodus 12, 3-5. The day of sacrifice is approaching. We can see how the name Jesus, Yeshua, matches up with his role as the sacrificial lamb and sin bearer. The blood will soon be shed to provide spiritual deliverance. But what about his other name, Christ? That's the Greek word for anointed or anointed one. It's actually a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Palm Sunday wasn't just the time when the Passover lamb was to be chosen. It was also the very day God promised to reveal the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. Two Old Testament prophecies lock arms to help Israel identify their Messiah when he finally arrived. The first was the remarkable prophecy of Daniel 9, 24-27, which foretold the 490-year prophetic history of the nation. Know and understand this, Daniel writes, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Hamashiach, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. A total of 69 groups of seven years will transpire from the day a command is given to rebuild Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity until the Messiah finally appears. The command to rebuild was given by the king of Persia to Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, and 482 prophetic years later, exactly 173,880 days to the very day, is when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. A scholar named Harold Honer worked through the detailed calculations to determine the exact amount of time between the going forth of the command and the triumphal entry. It would take an entire program just to present all those details. But the bottom line is that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled on March 30, A.D. 33, the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The second Old Testament prophecy that locks arms with Daniel 9 is from the prophet Zechariah. If Daniel told Israel when the Messiah would arrive, Zechariah explained how the Messiah would arrive. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet announced, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Watch for the king, the anointed one, to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's exactly how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Apparently, some in the crowd understood the significance of the day and the manner in which Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives. They shouted the words of Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
The Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke them, but he responded by saying that if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. God revealed the time and manner the king would arrive, and it could not be hidden. Sadly, those who were saying the right words didn't fully grasp their significance. They saw the arrival of the king, but missed God's selection of the Passover lamb on this same day. Weeping over what their ultimate rejection would mean for the city and the nation, Jesus cried out, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. As he described the coming judgment, he said it would happen because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, Joshua the Messiah, the Savior and the King, and all the names united on Palm Sunday, the very day God promised his people that the Passover lamb and the anointed Messiah would officially appear. Now, as Jesus enters the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus with his disciples, we remain out here in the street, thinking about everything we just saw. There was excitement and energy on the Mount of Olives, followed by an intensity in Jesus' eyes as he gazed around the temple courts. The Passover lamb and promised Messiah showed up on the very day, month, and year announced by God. But at the end of the day, most missed the ultimate spiritual significance. But what about you? Have you acknowledged Jesus as your Savior? Have you bowed the knee to Hamashiach, the Christ, the Anointed One, as your ultimate Lord? If you're not sure, why not do so today, right now? Don't be like so many on that day 2,000 years ago who didn't recognize the time of God's coming. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6-2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Charlie, in the providence of God, I, I, I can envision somebody who had no intention of listening to this program today, stumbling across it, suddenly says, you know, I, I, I've never really made Jesus in charge of my life. I've never made him. What's this word, Savior? What do I do, these people are asking? How do I take the next step? How do I receive this forgiveness and make Jesus in charge of my life? Well, John, I think the key is starting and recognizing that God had a plan. Uh, He recorded it in the Old Testament, and it involved him sending his own son, who was the ultimate Passover lamb for the people. When Jesus came to earth, he came to do what we can't do. We're sinners. We can't work our way to heaven. We're never good enough. Hmm. Jesus was the perfect God-man. But instead of going back to heaven, he went to the cross to die to pay for our sins. And all they need to do is say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe your son died to save my sins, and I want to put my trust in him right now. Jesus, forgive me of my sins because of what you did on the cross, and make me one of your children. And if they pray that, they will enter into God's family. Maybe you'd like some help as you pray. A friend is glad to pray with you right now at 888-NEED-HIM. 888 need him. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. Our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for your company. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.